Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. We should sort of say this is the last live one before our summer break, but never fear, listener, because we have four or indeed five very interesting author interviews. We have some summertime treats for you, some summer specials. We've some got some corkers, don't yeah. we? Yeah. Caitlin Moran, Fuchsia Dunlop, the chef, Henry Dimbleby on food and farming and nature. We have Sunder Katwana on identity. And we've got Ben Goldsmith on nature and loss. It's a great cornucopia of treats. It is. We have a fine summer of cheerful conversations for you. I've got some advice to ask you. Oh, go on. I love this. Am I too old for the Reading Festival? Um, Yes. Yes, you are in a certain sense. I tell you why I asked. It's because Sam Fender is playing at the Reading Festival on Friday the 20-something of August. And I'm quite interested in going. I thought it would be like Glastonbury. I basically have got the festival bug and I thought it'd be a bit like Glastonbury, but I sort of slightly feel like it might be out of my age range. Here's what you'd look like if you went to Reading. You'd look like a parent whose teenager had gone to Reading without permission and you'd gone in there to find them and haul them back home again. (laughs) Have you ever been to the Reading Festival? I have, yes. I think I went to see New Order there. Were there lots of 50-somethings there? Not that I remember. I think it's seen, I think the Reading Festival specifically is seen very much as a teenager's rite of passage. Okay, fine. So so either I'm doing that rite of passage very late or I'm watching it on the telly. Yes. Why don't you wait until Sam Fender is doing a show somewhere with relatively comfortable seats? (laughs) For the happier early bird special, is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying? I think so. I mean, I'm just a sort of festival novice, you see, that's the thing. So that just Yeah, nice. I think that Glastonbury, Latitude, the, the, these ones are going to be more in your, uh, more in your wheelhouse. Saga holiday, yeah. saga holidays. 
I fear we are both in the saga holidays demographic, demographic yeah. now. Is it, Isn't that yeah. right? Is, is there a nice cruise you could go on with a few bands playing? Yeah, I think so. Maybe that's right. Now, I have something quite exciting to report, Oh, which is my father-in-law has a bicycle and it's basically in bits, slightly in bits, but he's donated it to me. And so I rang up my local bicycle shop and I said, listen, I've got this bicycle for my father-in-law. I think he might need new tyres and this, that and the other. Is it worth – it's got dropped handlebars, by the way. Uh, is it worth mending? And they were like, well, I don't know. Da, da, da. And, I said, and they said, I said, it's a Mercian. And they were like, oh. Oh. So they were impressed. Oh. So I'm, I'm sort of reporting this because I've been aspiring to sort of – Ditch of, the electric bike. Well, or not ditch, but sort of have some optionality. Um, Can I congratulate you on the use of the word optionality there? I know, I was, it was good. It was, I don't it think was anybody good. has ever said that word in real life before. Really? Yeah. Anyway, just watch this space. I'm going to take it, I'm going to take it to them in August. And then Justine said to me that I should change, get the dropped handlebars changed for the quote, sit up and beg handlebars. I don't know why it's sit up and beg. Why is that they called that? Have you heard that phrase No, I before? haven't, no. Oh, I've heard it before. It's like the, you know, not dropped handlebars. Like on a rally chopper. I think it, I think she might be thinking like dropped handlebars are the equivalent of the Reading Festival for me. <laughs> anyway, so I might be like Craclad, dropped handlebars, Tour de France. <laughs> <laughs> I'm heading in that direction. Well, in, in, in lieu of seeing photos of you at the Reading Festival, I'd be quite happy mm. for pictures of you in full Tour de France regalia, riding yeah. with the dropped handlebars. Shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. This week, we are talking about the wonders of trees. How often have you thought about what they do for us and how beneficial they are in the fight against climate and nature crises? Well, I have thought about that, yeah. Well, you can uh, absent yourself for the rest of the conversation. <laughs> but you're going to think about it some more. Um, yeah. We are going down to the woods today with Nick. Oh, who's going down to the woods. Who's good today. If you go to down the woods to the woods today, today. Just your other big surprise with Nick Phillips, yeah. who will tell us about the hidden depths of ancient woodlands. Captain Captain Phillips. Uh, Suzanne Simmons from Trees for Cities about urban tree planting. And then finally to Rebecca Wrigley about rewilding and how when we leave trees to their own devices, they can do some amazing things. What's your reason to be cheerful, Ed? I have a theory concerning beverages. Oh. I think that we were trendsetters in the iced coffee steaks. I, I've noticed that there is much more iced coffee available than there used to be, say, three or four years ago. Aha. Don't you think? And There's much more of it around, and I bought a can of iced coffee the other day. Yes, I've seen that, cans of cold brew. And, and you think yeah. this is a ripple effect of people seeing these hip dudes, like me and you, strolling around no, iced it, coffee in hand. I think it's a ripple effect of this podcast, Jeff. <laughs> and I think it shows that I, I have an eye for the FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods market. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm not even sure iced coffee's an FMCG, actually. I'm drinking iced coffee now. Listen, that's the ice in the mug. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is I pushed myself out of my comfort zone last weekend mm. and I took Jean to an immersive event. Mm. We turned up at a disused office block 
We were told to change into jumpsuits. Uh, I wasn't able to because of my <laughs> arm being in a sling. Uh, oh, is your arm in a sling? I didn't know that, Jeff. <laughs> Honestly, I would have been quite sympathetic if you should have let us thank know you, about thank that. Thank you. You know, like, yeah. I, I, I real, yeah. uh, I'm a bit of a martyr. Yeah. I suffer in silence. You, 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 you do. Yeah. I mean, you sort of like, you know, you really. I just don't like to be a fuss. Your, Take your suffering well, you know, yeah. keep it quiet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. So, so then this this place has been decked out to look like a, a research facility. A mad scientist tells us that he's invented a drink which is going to enable us to pass through a portal and go to another planet. Then they get the kids using test tubes to mix a drink and there's all like dry ice coming out and they're bubbling as, as if they're lava. We drink these things and then they say, right, it's time to go through the portal and this is why you've got the jumpsuits on. They're going to protect you from the radiation, otherwise you'd be burned up. Going And then Gene gets really distressed because I haven't got a jumpsuit mm. on. He puts his hand up and goes, but will, will my dad be killed going through the portal? And then the actors have to ad-lib and say, no, he'll be fine because his slinger's got special powers. I mean, it sounds like a nightmare. But you you, you <laughs> like an immersive event. Well, no, nightmare for you. I saw it through a child's eyes. And great news, I didn't get burnt up going through the portal. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start the conversation, we have with us Principal Forestry Policy Advocate at the Woodland Trust, Nick Phillips. Hello. Hello. Great title, don't you think, Jeff? <laughs> Definitely. That's what you want on your business card. If you sat next to someone on a train and they ask what you do for a living, is that is that what you say? It's a good question. Yeah, I generally wouldn't use my, my job title. And so I guess you probably summarise my job as trying to encourage government to take the right policies on, on woods and trees. I don't think you probably get much pushback on that from from people on the train. <laughs> I like the sort of words of the word principle there, don't you think, Jeff? Yes, yeah, I do. He's not just any old forestry policy advocate. He's, he's the Nick principle. Phillips. He's the principle <laughs> one. And I'm guessing when you do tell people what you do, everybody is pro-tree. Yeah, I mean, that's the great... I think particularly recently, I think trees have really gone up the agenda. And I think, you know, it's it's pretty clear we need to protect what we've already got, the little we've already got, and expand it. So, yeah, I think people generally are positive about trees. And, I mean, to be honest, I've noticed a lot of my family are a lot more positive about trees since we've been having these hot summers. And, you know, I think the shade they've been providing has been really invaluable. I think a lot of people are wishing they'd planted trees if they're lucky enough to have gardens a lot a lot quicker than, than they had done. Yeah, well, well, something extraordinary is our country, uh, Britain's forests and woodlands, looked very different uh, thousands of years ago. And, and there's only now 2.5% of those areas left. So just, just describe to us what the landscape would have been like. Yeah, I mean, so the UK would have been an awful lot more more wooded, and particularly over the last century, there's been a lot more pressures on on land for farming, for development, and we're now unfortunately on the league table of Europe of some of the lowest woodland cover in Europe, so about thirteen percent. And in terms of ancient woodland, which is our our most precious woodland, and that's that's basically woodlands that have been around for a very, very long time. And they have built up these amazing irreplaceable wildlife and plant relationships that aren't found anywhere else. But yeah, we've only got 2.5% of those left. And about half of that is currently still quite damaged 
by things we've done to ancient woodlands in the past. So there was a big drive for timber and wood production after World War II. And that meant that a lot of the ancient woodlands, our most precious woodlands, were um, felled or in some cases poisoned and converted to these timber production systems. And we still got that legacy. So about half of that ancient woodland is under uh, plantation forestry. If we found ourselves in ancient woodland, and forgive me if this is an ignorant question, Nick, how would we know that we're in ancient woodland rather than non-ancient woodland? So um, often uh, within ancient woodlands, you'll, there'll be sort of indicator plants or animals that, that are not found anywhere else. So there's some kind of more uh, unusual things, such as something called the lemon slug, which I wouldn't expect most people to be able to identify, but it's a, a bright yellow slug with uh, purple tentacles. Wow. And it's a pretty amazing thing. Uh, and if you saw it, you would think that was quite unusual. But for those of us that aren't avid experts in this type of thing, bluebells is another really common indicator that you're mm, in an ancient woodland. Yeah. And yeah, the UK has got about 50% half of the entire global population of bluebells. But obviously those are squeezed into the really small amount of ancient woodland that we've got left. So it's incredibly important, obviously. I mean, shouldn't we just pause on that? Isn't that amazing? We've got 50% of all of the world's bluebells. Really amazing. I mean, that's yeah, amazing. It's something that isn't well known. Why is that? Nick? It's often down to particularly unique conditions that we, we have in the UK. So we do have, being an island nation as well, we've got some quite unique types of ancient woodland. People might not realise as well, we have um, temperate rainforest uh, in the UK, which is often in, in coastal areas. And this is also something that really supports these really rare and unusual species. And you can sometimes see where ancient woodlands used to be, where you might see a bluebell patch, you think, oh, that's not within a woodland. Again, that might give you an indication of what used to be there. Um, and why do you say that ancient woodlands are the most precious type of woodland? What's, what's special about them? One of the things is the huge variety of, of wildlife that they can support. They're our most important woodland wildlife habitat. But um, they're also incredibly uh, important for protecting our cultural heritage. So in the distant past, people would have been very much reliant on our ancient woodlands and our woodlands, and they would have used them for, for food, for heating themselves. And another thing, which is a bit more recent uh, research, which we've done, which actually surprised me, was how important they are for, for locking up carbon. So the study that, that we did showed that almost 30% capture more carbon than other types of woodland. And this is simply because they're they're very old. And actually, that's predicted to double over the next century. So they're really sort of quietly helping us keep carbon locked up. So older trees are better at taking in carbon dioxide? It's quite complicated. So we need to both keep carbon locked up. So that's particularly important in our, our ancient woodlands and protecting what we've already got. But we also need to capture carbon. And that's where woodland planting trees or letting woodlands self-seed and spread themselves is, is really important. And, and we need to, to produce or plant and create more native woodland, but also more woodland for, for growing and using timber as well, which is something that we all use in our day-to-day -day lives. Just to underline that point, Nick, there's a point after which trees reach a certain age where they stop taking in carbon, but by not chopping them down, you, if you like, you lock in the carbon. Is that the basic point? That is the basic point. And, and I think that the science, though, is slightly is changing on that in that the, the assumption that trees kind of stop 
capturing carbon. It's been shown that often actually old trees can continue uh, to capture carbon. And particularly, it's kind of to use an old kind of overused phrase, I guess, in my world, but to see the wood for the trees is effectively locking up carbon in the wider wood. So all of the soil, um, the plants, the dead wood, all of this is capturing carbon within our woodlands. In fact, most carbon in woodlands isn't in the trees at all. It's in the soil. Our ancient woodlands happen to have these soils which haven't been touched for, you know, in many cases, thousands of years, which is why they're, they're so important. Talk to us about the balance that we need to strike about protecting these ancient woodlands and, and planting new trees. We very much need to do both. I think it's fair to say the spotlight has largely been on planting trees, which is, which is good. But one thing that hasn't had the same attention is about restoring some of the ancient woodlands that we've already got. So we've done some calculations. There's about half of ancient woodland is damaged by plantation forestry. And we think it's really important that those who own those areas are, are properly supported to, to restore it. To bring most of that into restoration would only cost about the same amount as three miles of a high-speed rail network. And what does inter-restoration mean? So th- these are areas that have been effectively felled in many cases and planted with non-native trees for timber. And restoration would be slowly removing those non-native trees to restore the original woodland. So bring back native trees, you might create more light for things like bluebells to flourish again and some of the wildlife to return. And we've shown that that's very much possible, um, which is we're quite lucky in a way that we haven't actually lost that ancient woodland yet. You can bring it back. And the government has a recent tree planting target. Uh, talk to us about that and, and how well that is going. Yeah, so government have released uh, statistics quite recently about how much has been planted over the last year. So the aim of government was to create an area about 7,000 hectares every year. And the latest statistics show that the current rates are just over 3,000 hectares in England. But if you zoom out at UK level, the Climate Change Committee have said we need to be creating 30,000 hectares across the UK. And we're only currently creating in the UK about half that. So we're a long way from where we need to be. And that's not only important, of course, for capturing carbon, but all the other benefits that we need more tree cover, be that for access, for timber, for, for wildlife, for helping prevent flooding. And with this tree planting, where will they mainly go? What kind of land is, is used? Is it urban land? Is it rural land? Is it a combination of both? What's the balance there? It's a combination of both, but most of that, in terms of the large areas, will be um, farmland. So about 72% of, of UK is, is farmed. And yeah, a very a large portion of that will be going on farmland that, that isn't already highly productive for, for food. So you will be avoiding that 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 trade-off. But one of the things which has become a real kind of hot topic in the woods and trees world is something called agroforestry, which is a very grand term for basically farming with trees. And what what's been shown is that you can increasingly use trees on your farms to, to not only grow more food might be providing shade for your cattle or your livestock, might be stopping your soil from washing away in flooding events, but also that's capturing carbon, benefiting wildlife. So you've got a real win-win-win. Now, uh, we're talking really about British trees today, but it is hard to divorce that from a global system of deforestation for timber and meat production how do you think our priorities and our actions here need to be responding to that system, which is very destructive, clearly? Good question. And it's a, re- it's a really 
important area. We use a lot of wood in the UK, um, but we import about 80% of that. Now, a lot of that is from the United States, from pristine forests to be burnt effectively in power stations like Drax. So it's it depends on the type of wood you're talking about, but certainly growing more trees in the UK for wildlife and more trees for, for wood production could be a benefit, but we should definitely be thinking global. Do you want to finish by giving us a reason to be cheerful about your work protecting ancient woodlands here in Britain and, and what that could potentially mean for tackling the climate and biodiversity crises? I think that's the thing that keeps me constantly positive, really, is just the sheer level of benefits that woods and trees can can provide us. I mean, I would recommend everybody to, you know, really get out into your, your local woodland, be that an ancient woodland, be that another type of woodland. And it, for me, it was just a real solace, particularly during things like lockdown, during really challenging times. You know, the benefits of woods and trees for our mental health is hugely encouraging. And I think you know, particularly the increasingly challenging and scary times we're entering, I think woods and trees, we're going to need them more than ever. So for me, it's just spend time out in in amongst woods and trees. And I think, you know, see some of the benefits for yourself. What's your favourite ancient woodland, Nick? Oh, good question. I mean, I know that's probably a bit invidious for all the other ones that aren't your favourite. Probably. If if you happen to be in Devon, there's, there's a woodland called Fingal Woods, which... It looks like something out of Lord of the Rings and you can walk around it and it's covered in lichen and, 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 and these amazing species. And it, it's a really good example uh, where we work with the National Trust to restore one of these sites that used to be a timber plantation. We've now started to restore that back to its former glory. And it's it's just an amazing site. So if you happen to be in Devon, do look that up. Fingal Wood. You heard it here first, Jeff. Yeah, you heard about this ancient woodland here first. So Nick Phillips, he's a man, Jeff. I think we can definitely say he can see the wood for the trees. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thanks both. Thank you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So to carry on the conversation, we're now joined by Suzanne Simmons, who is Projects Director for Trees for Cities. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us. You're more than welcome, and it's an absolute delight to be able to talk about what we do at Trees for Cities. Thanks very much for inviting us. So tell us, what does Trees for Cities do? Well, Trees for Cities engages primarily with communities in urban areas, so towns and cities, basically, as it says in the title. And we engage with them to plant trees. And so our aim is ultimately to get people enjoying the trees that they already have, protecting them. And then we promote the benefits of trees. And then we get people to get stuck in to actually plant the trees and have some kind of decision making ability on how their local spaces and green spaces can be shaped through tree planting. And your background is as a landscape architect, is that right? Yes, that's right. It gives me quite a good oversight of spatial planning, particularly interested in urban landscapes and green infrastructure and the power of green infrastructure to help make cities more resilient. And and tell us about those benefits. What do trees do? for our towns and cities? Because I'm I'm guessing that a lot of the time people perhaps just take them for granted and and don't think about them. They might notice them, but not thinking about the role they're playing. Well, trees are amazing things. They're living, breathing, they're constantly growing. So when you're trying to put trees into places, you have to think not only what they're going to do from day one, but also think in the longer term, in the very long term, in some cases, we're looking at sort of sometime between, you know, 25 and 50 years before a tree will actually start to reach some level of maturity and release all the benefits that they do give. One of the most tangible things is around reducing urban heat. So you can see on a day when it's like 38 degrees last year, we reached those kind of temperatures. You stand under a tree, you can have a reduction in urban heat by between five, eight degrees. Now that makes a huge difference. It doesn't sound a lot on its own, but it makes a huge difference to thermal comfort. And it can also reduce the heat pressure on buildings um, and the kind of impact of very intense heat. And we're seeing that in Europe at the moment. Um, The trees have a limit. There's only so much they can do. And, you know, there can be a tipping point where trees won't survive excessive heat. But that's one of the things. The other thing that we're looking at is designing our spaces to support improved air quality. So we can look at positioning trees, green screens, green infrastructure to deflect poor quality air away from source. So initially roads, we're looking at roads and busy roads and highways away from places where vulnerable people like young children are congregating. In fact, people sometimes talk that trees absorb poor quality air. They do to some extent, but it's this kind of initial deflection of uh, poor quality air. Trees can help in the management of surface water and they can form part of surface water management plans. You can identify zones where um, they may be liable to surface water flooding. Do you think, Suzanne, we can learn something from the Japanese and their forest bathing or Shinrin-yoku? Well, you know, you're asking me about something I've never done there. It's uh, It sounds really exciting. Some of my friends have been looking at that as well, but definitely the mental and social impacts of trees shouldn't be underestimated. And so I think in recent years, there's so much evidence to support the fact that trees can provide improved health and well-being outcomes. 
we've had people talk about tree hugging, but forest bathing is another kind of tangible way of uh, expressing that. I I don't know what forest bathing is. I mean, it's Rachel who put me onto it. And if you look it up, in fact, there's a course. You can go on a course, a Shinrin-yoku forest bathing course. The Japanese practice of Shinrin-yoku or forest bathing is simple and therapeutic act of spending time in a forest. If you've ever been in a forest, listen to the birds and watch the sunshine filtering through the leaves. You've already participated in one of the best things you can do for your physical and mental well-being. Wow, so I've been forest bathing, but I didn't realise it. Yeah. You should leave your phone at the hotel, Joe. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, forest is so great for moment, Pokemon Go. You take a moment to appreciate your surroundings, listen to the sounds around you, twittering birds, uh, rustling bush, trickling streams. Oh, fabulous. There you go. I mean, trees do this. We know that. They've assessed how trees, just even seeing a tree from your window can improve. It triggers something in your brain to improve your mental health. And also children who can see and students who can look out on trees from their their classrooms, they perform better. So, yeah, there's evidence to back that up. Suzanne, do you have a preference on the type of trees that get planted? Is there a is there an issue about what kind of trees? Because people warn about like monoculture, yes. don't they? But is that something you get involved That's in? That's very much something that we have to be very conscious of, particularly in cities. There's very different dynamics going on in cities. We were talking about urban heat earlier. We're talking about a very different climate. So we're having to make sure that the trees we plant are going to be resilient to this the sort of increased temperature, but also to the associated pests and diseases. So if we look around London, for instance, and we see the London plain as a monoculture and how many of these trees are in our neighbourhoods, you can understand what the impact might be if they were attacked by a devastating disease like Dutch elm disease. Um, You know, we would lose a lot of our tree canopy cover. So it's really important to sort of diversify the tree planting. We're also seeing that some of our familiar species in the southern part of the UK aren't surviving so well in higher temperatures. So lovely beech trees, one of my favourite trees, they're kind of migrating north, they're surviving better in the northern part of the country and trying to survive ash tree, suffering from ash dieback. Again, we're not really able to plant that until we know what the research tells us uh, for future resilient species. But we are planting, because I see this as a very positive podcast, we are planting disease-resistant varieties of elm trees now. So uh, we've gone through a bit of devastation with elm trees, but we're now starting to reintroduce those trees into our palette of trees. Something that strikes me is if ever a local authority are going to fell trees, there's all this strong feeling there's opposition from residents. What do you think this says about the way that we, we need to be thinking about trees when it comes to urban planning? It's a good question. I mean, sometimes trees do need to come up because they're dying or they're diseased and there are, you know, significant structural problems associated with them. And I think we have to recognise in cities, each piece of space, each square metre is highly contested. Informing people is a good way to start. Why are we removing these trees? Sometimes we're finding there's not sufficient good reason. These trees have taken a long time. They've captured carbon, sequestered it into the into their whole structure. They're, you know, they've created a microhabitat. Sometimes taking them out for new development 
can be removing very precious resource. And I think perhaps helping part of our remit is to help people understand the benefits these trees bring. And it's not just about planting them, it's about protecting them and looking after them. And you know, planting the right tree in the right place is really important. It's a bit of a mantra, but it's if it's backed up by good research, then putting the right tree in the right place can have you can have a tree that will last to its, its longest lifespan, you know, over a hundred years in some cases and more. There is a um, inequality angle here as well, isn't there, yes. Suzanne? Because it's so often the poorest people in our society who have the least access to green spaces, uh, to some of the benefits of, of of trees and greenery that that you've talked about. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. We plant trees in places that need them the most and ideally in places that they have highest level of deprivation and the lowest level of tree canopy cover, which is a good way of measuring, you know, where trees are needed on a landscape scale or a city scale. You can start to look at where the gaps are. And then if you put the maps against multiple layers of social and environmental deprivation, you can see that those two things correlate really strongly. I think we can often think of trees as things that happen to us. Is there an action that we can take to make sure that we are getting involved with better protecting and appreciating urban trees? Well, one of the things that we offer is the opportunity both across the year, but in the autumn months, we have tree planting events where we get mass numbers of people out to plant trees in the neighbourhoods. And not only does that give people ownership, um, we talk to them about it, but before we plant the trees, get them to sort of engage on how and why we would want to plant trees where we are planting them. After these trees are planted, we don't walk away. We have events and activities and we try to leave legacies. So one of our sites in Ealing, we've set up a, an urban greening group. So it's like getting people actively involved and interested. For us, that's been a great success because they then start to be self-determining. So get involved, get your hands dirty. Well, look, Suzanne Simmons, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks. With us now is CEO of Rewilding Britain, Rebecca Wrigley. Hello. Hello. It's great to be here. Well, it's good to get to talk to you because we had your colleague Alistair Driver on, I think, a couple of years ago. But for people who maybe weren't around for that episode, can you remind us of what Rewilding Britain is, how it came to be and, and what you're aiming to do? Well, we're uh, a charity and we launched eight years ago now, which seems incredible. Lots of people got in contact to say, this is exciting. It would be useful to have an organisation whose primary purpose was to support and catalyse and, uh, and make rewilding happen across Britain. Tell us generally about rewilding. So when we think about areas that can be rewilded, what are we what are we talking about and how do trees factor into that? Well, I mean, trees are just a part of some of the amazing habitats and ecosystems in the British Isles. We've just not got very many of them left. So rewilding is about restoring nature's amazing web of life, I suppose, and the incredible complexity and abundance and um, diversity in that web of life. It's about restoring natural processes, so free-flowing rivers that may sometimes change their course or decaying trees in woodlands that may fall and create new habitats. So it's it's all about complexity and dynamism, really. And forests and trees are just a critical part of those ecosystems. And for instance, Scotland used to be covered in, pretty much covered in Caledonian pine forests and a whole swathe of the western half of Britain 
was once temperate rainforest, which is just such an incredibly rich, amazing kind of almost legendary type of, of woodland. I mean, quite literally, the Ents in Lord of the Rings were based on our Atlantic oakwoods or, or temperate rainforests. And how much of a helping hand does rewilding need? In, in other words, if you just left it alone after a certain amount of time, do trees just replant themselves if you leave them to it? I mean, it depends very much on the circumstances. And yes, yes, they would reestablish naturally, and which is why we really support kind of natural regeneration or natural colonization, as some people say. So our approach is very much to let nature lead where it can. For instance, jays in most of the woodlands and, and lowlands of Britain, jays would help spread the seeds uh, of woodlands out into the fields. So that's a critical part. And wherever we can, I think we should let nature do its thing. But there are some circumstances where it needs a bit of a helping hand. It may be sort of scarifying and breaking up if you've got a thick sward of grass and tree seedlings can't get into that sward and establish themselves. You might need to scarify a bit or bring in some herbivores to sort of mess it all up. What does scarify mean? Well, sort of break up that, that sward, you know, maybe cut the vegetation. And only where it's absolutely necessary do we think that planting, actually planting trees is the right approach. So that might be where there are no seed sources, for instance, or it's so distant from seed source that trees would eventually reestablish themselves, but would take a very long time to do so. So we would like to see much more natural regeneration of woodlands across Britain. And when you become involved in rewilding, is it something that you think I'm doing this for future generations or, or it'll be a long time or, or can actually you see that difference more quickly than that? I mean, it can happen very quickly. Again, it depends on the location. So in the uplands, if you've not got a seed source, for instance, it might take quite a long time. They talk about our food webs or our ecosystems in many places being downgraded and in order to sort of upgrade them and to give them that boost and almost sort of rocket fuel for biodiversity, what you need to do is give it a bit of a helping hand in the first instance. And that's often about, again, allowing free-flowing rivers and re-wetting our, our peatlands or putting in those missing species that are so critical to creating that dynamism and diversity and complexity. Is there a project that you've seen the change happen in that springs to mind? I mean, there's there's many. So, for instance, in Scotland, there's projects like Borders Forest Trust, which is, have actually used a sort of tree planting approach. And we, you can see they've got these amazing photos of uh, of a valley called Corifran that they've been replanting uh, and the woodland is just now emerging. And, and they've even done amazing Ecoacoustics, so taken not just photos of the valley as it's progressed, but also sound recordings of the sort of thrum and buzz as a result of that process. They've used much more natural regeneration approaches in places like Glenfeshi and the Cairngorms and Mar Lodge. So just really dropping that grazing pressure from deer and cattle and sheep has allowed the, 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 the pine forest to start to recover. And you can see this sort of mosaic emerging across the landscape. And in England, you might want to visit Wild Ennerdale, for instance, in, in Cumbria in, in the Lake District or RSPB Horswater, where, again, they're using that approach. And you can see this sort of mosaic of woodland and pasture emerging. What do we know about the way in which trees communicate with each other? <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking about the Ents from Lord of the Rings here. I'm, I'm talking about the 
trees as we know them. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on that, but we know that there's an amazing mycelial connection in woodlands through the soil. And I think we're really just discovering how amazing that is, both in terms of the ecosystem of the soil, but also in the, in the health of our trees. And I was talking to some of the people that work at National Trust uh, Killerton Estate, and they were saying that what they're seeing is different. For instance, when you either try and encourage natural regeneration of trees or even plant trees, they're seeing big differences between different places and are wondering whether one of the factors in that is where there is that healthy mycelial growth under the soil or where it's already gone and therefore regeneration of trees takes a, a lot longer. So it's, it's, you know, it's an amazing world out there that we're only just beginning to understand. Talk to me a little bit about when we see companies saying that they've planted thousands of trees to take action against the climate crisis. This isn't always as legitimate as it might seem on first glance, is it? Not all tree planting is created equal. No, I completely agree. And, and in, in some instances, not all at all, being used almost in the name of rewilding or being called rewilding when really it's it's not, can be corporate greenwash, quite frankly. So what we'd like to see is um, much more genuine rewilding approaches taking place, not just about planting Sitka spruce in inappropriate places like deep peat, for instance. For example, if you plant on deep peat, you can actually release more carbon from the soil and from the peat than the tree actually captures. So you're not even fixing or storing carbon or sequestering carbon at all. And the other concern that we have is that in many instances, it may be planting trees and achieving targets in that way, but is not bringing biodiversity benefits and, and is certainly not bringing benefits to local communities because this is something that we have to do with people and not to them. So our approach is very much that people are part of nature and that rewilding should support a diversification of rural economies, support and sustain rural communities and give people much more access to wild nature. And how does that trillion tree target that has gained a lot of traction, how, do, how does that factor into that? I mean, even, even Donald Trump signed up for that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in some ways it's it's been great because it's brought attention to the amazing role that trees can play. I think in some ways, you know, and I think that a lot of politicians, for example, quite like tree planting because it's a physical thing that you can go and stand in a field and see when really the, the the picture is more complex than that. And actually, again, in most places, you can just allow natural regeneration to happen. I, mean, I, I don't know about you, but I get increasingly frustrated about going for walks in the countryside and seeing trees planted with old plastic tree guards still there yes. within a wood where you actually don't need to plant trees yes. at all. Um, so I think Bringing attention to the amazing role that trees and forests play is good, but I think it's a simplified picture that is easy to sort of jump on the bandwagon a bit. A fact that stayed with me is, is that Britain's oldest tree is over a thousand years old. And then when you think about that, does it contextualise things and maybe make you feel optimistic that we can start thinking again in the long term to rewild and to restore our natural environment? I mean, I'm incredibly optimistic. There are many reasons to be cheerful uh, with rewilding. What it really is going to take is primarily political will. I mean, I, what we'd like to see is is a national conversation about what we are asking of the land in the 21st century and how we best use the land and manage the land and, and include prioritizing nature as the sort of primary productivity of the land over 
where that makes makes most sense. So probably in our kind of lower lower grade agricultural lands, some of the uplands. So I think it's a hopeful picture if, as a nation, we decide that that is a priority for us. And there are other examples where nations have done that. For instance, in Costa Rica, they've over the last couple of decades inc- increased their forest cover from I think about twenty four percent to 57% and seen an increase in their gross domestic product. So there is and are inspirational stories about this change happening. Do you want to finish with a favourite tree for us, Rebecca? Ooh, favourite tree or could I have a favourite woodland? We had a favourite woodland from Nick. Let's see if if it's the same one. Well, the part of Britain that I love the most is the western side of the Cairngorms around Abernethy and Glenfeshy. And I suppose what's what what I love about it is, is the scale. So they've got Caledonian pine forest, mixed broadleaf forest. They've got free-flowing rivers creating a dynamism. Um, and it just feels one of the wildest landscapes that I've seen in, and experienced in Britain. It sounds incredible. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, fancy a spot of forest bathing? Definitely. What do you think the appropriate attire is? Mm, sort of loose. Yes. I think I'd look good in a leaf crown. Just a leaf crown. <laughs> yeah, maybe some other leaves to protect my modesty. <laughs> um, I think it's a great subject. I feel like I'm getting more into nature as I age. Yes, definitely. And I think when we yes, started... Yes, definitely, that's true of me or you too. <laughs> no, I think that's something we all have too, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? And I think that maybe when we started approaching nature in our episodes a, a while ago, it was very much with a, a climate and biodiversity yes. crisis yes. hat on. But the the more we talk about it, the more the, the benefits are, are, are across a life and are, are across a society are so tangible, I think. Yeah. And it's just something sort of spiritual, magical, calming about yes. it. Yes. Yeah, like physical, mental health benefits. That fact uh, that we heard from Suzanne about kids perform yeah. better at school if they can see a tree yeah. out of the window. I know. It's so interesting. I was slightly concerned that you thought the notion of not bringing your phone into the forest bathing. I, I think I'm going to go forest bathing with you, Jeff. I think it would have to be with no phones, don't you but, think? But- Wanna, what do you think? Because you want to take a picture? No, I want to use that app to figure out what kind of birds I'm hearing. Mm, I want to look up point. what kinds of trees I'm looking at. I never how check we Twitter. Make, or well, X. I was about to say, how would you stop stop you watching going to Twitter? That's the thing. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Is it because I do think that it's sort of there's something about this whole nature thing, which is about nourishing one's spiritual side. They should have a mode on your phone. You know, like they have that focus mode. They should have nature mode where you can only access um, apps to identify different types of leaves and birdsong. I mean, song. that is a good idea. All, all other elements of your phone are disabled. I mean, there is also a, a deep inequality issue, I think, which is worth highlighting here, which is, you know, there are benefits of green spaces, but we know that poorer people have much less access to green spaces. I think the also they, it's what Suzanne was saying about the urban trees i think it's really interesting isn't it yeah urban tree cover which i think is going to be much more important as we try and adapt to climate change yeah so from all points of view this episode was a treat send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast whoa ho ho we're in the outro ho ho 
And you have news hot off the press. You are just one of life's cynics, Lloydy. <laughs> it's true. But Alistair Campbell? It's another Al Campbell. Maybe that's why he calls himself Al Campbell. At Cheerful Podcast, hope for Ed's healthy vending machines after all. And it is a Chicago tweet about egg and milk vending machines. Wow, this looks like a very modern version of a farm stall. When somebody else does it, you're all in awe. <laughs> just, it's just when I do it that you think it's a load of old pants. No, I'll tell you my first thought. I'm looking at this. Yes. I'm thinking expiry dates. No, but the expiry dates, we, we're all too hung up on these expiry dates. Isn't that the latest thinking? Well, it is, but you do want to have a little sniff before you take your chances, don't you? It's true. Well, you can just you can have the sniff. But the, the products are behind the glass of the vending machine. Well, I mean, okay, but, you know, in theory... Um, well, look, I think we're going we're gonna to have to thank our guests, but then we're going to have to sort of say goodbye for a bit, aren't we? We are, but parting is such a sweet sorrow and all that. And it's abiento, only a temporary farewell. Yes. Right. I'd like to thank Nick Phillips, Suzanne Simmons and Rebecca Wrigley. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish London. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed C composed the music. James Deacon made our idents and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.